79 years ago to remember. It is Pearl Harbor Day. Remember Pearl Harbor. And it sort of rings just right. It's the thing that you do to Pearl Harbor. You don't do, well, you can do a lot of things to it, but you, you've got to remember it. And so we are remembering it here tonight. And um, let's see, 29 years ago tonight, we were remembering it. And I had been told that the perfect guest for it was a guy named Joe Cadell, who was a military historian. He was teaching uh, some at Chapel Hill and some at uh, the uh, the University of North Carolina at Raleigh. Oops, uh, North Carolina State University. And uh, so I invited him to come, and he has been our Pearl Harbor voice ever since then. Dr. Cadell, are you there somewhere? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Sure am. I think I hope I got that right. I think I did. And. Uh, and in the 29 years that you've been appearing, you've appeared on a lot of other military anniversaries and uh, helped us understand what was going on there. But we're going back to the thing that you you came to visit us first on, uh, on uh, Pearl Harbor Day in 1991. And I, as I was telling you before we came on the air, was a little bit uh, unsure about exactly how I want to proceed because basically my only job is to figure out which door to open and then to let you come through it. firm 
the obvious, right? <laughs> Pacific and Ocean. So naval power is going to be the determining factor. And, and both sides, it's funny, they really did kind of have similar concepts. They each thought they would, would, would fight for control of the Pacific, and it would be a, a naval war. Both had bought into the theories of, of Alfred Thayer Mahan and other naval theorists who said a nation that has a battle fleet and can get command of the sea will dominate. And each had bought into those ideas. But uh, things changed uh, in, in the early years of the Second World War. Uh, oddly enough, it's in Europe that things changed. The, the, uh, the Germans defeated uh, the French, overran the Netherlands and Belgium and France, and of course had, had Great Britain uh, surrounded. You have the Battle of Britain, the British feared invasion in 1940. That suddenly made the Japanese expansion plan in Asia a lot more plausible because the Dutch aren't going to be able to send reinforcements out to, to you know, defend their colonies. The French can't you know, defend their colonies. The Japanese moved in and occupied French Indochina. And the British don't have any forces, really, to send to the Pacific. You have very limited uh, ability to defend uh, their possessions out there. And so the Japanese see this as a chance uh, to fulfill that, that dream, to, to you know, expand, uh, gain the resource base. But the biggest threat at that point is the United States. The United States is the, the threat, and the... Uh, decided that they're going to move against uh, the European colonies. So they're going to move into British Malaysia, Dutch East Indies. They'd probably have to deal with the United States because we're in the Philippines. Uh, we're supposed to be given the Philippines their independence in 1942, but they knew we'd have bases there, and that would threaten that, you know, their supply line. And so they came up with this idea of neutralizing the biggest American uh, force, the, the most important American military or naval force in the Pacific, which was our Pacific fleet. And it was at Pearl Harbor in the Hawaiian Islands. And so that's the basis. Those are the basic strategic assumptions and strategic uh, objectives that led to Pearl Harbor. Now, is it, uh, I'm asking this because I watched a documentary today that had Stephen Ambrose, uh, mm -hmm. the good friend of our, our mutual friend Joe Hobbs, I believe. They used to be compadres. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. uh, if I remember correctly. But anyway, Ambrose was was uh, landing right at the point, right, right about the uh, time for the attack on Pearl Harbor and saying uh, the real surprise was the, that the attack happened in the Hawaiian Islands, not that there was an attack, uh, but it's where it took place. Uh, because well, there's a, the, the Japanese wanted the Dutch East Indies to get oil, and they wanted rubber and other things that were available, and they wanted the Philippines because of their strategic location, and then, and that maybe where people they, they thought it was going to be an attack, but they thought it would probably be one of those places of the Philippines. The surprise was the attack in in uh, the Hawaiian Islands. Uh, how does that measure up on your scale? No, I think I think that's that's true. Um... We can, into, we can go into more detail about uh, the intelligence that we had. Roosevelt actually knew on Saturday, December the 6th, that the Japanese were going to move. He knew that they were going to, 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 to expand, that they were going to launch an offensive. He just didn't know where. And he didn't know whether it would include the Philippines. That, that, was, a, that was the million-dollar question. Would they attack the Philippines? Because, as Ambrose points out, uh, you know, the, the, the location of the Philippines, they, the Japanese weren't going to feel comfortable um, expanding down into the East Indies, um, if we had bases uh, in, in, in the Philippines astride their sea lines, 
education. But they, if they knew anything about American public opinion, uh, they would have known that the United States wasn't going to declare war to defend Dutch or British colonies. And so yeah, they, they would actually probably have been fairly safe, um, not attacking the Philippines, because we weren't going to, to attack them. Uh, but uh, when they did decide uh, that they would, would attack the Philippines, that they were, were going to neutralize it, the main force that we had to reinforce the Philippines would be coming from Hawaii. Our war plan, uh, we had a series of war plans, the Rainbow Plan by that point, Rainbow 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. Um, in the Pacific, that assumed that the Philippines were to hold out for basically six months until reinforcements could arrive from the West Coast and Hawaii. And the reinforcements would only get there if they were escorted by the Pacific Fleet. And the Pacific Fleet, uh, up until 1940, had been based along the West Coast, all the way from Seattle to San Diego, up and down the, the, the West Coast. But in the uh, in late 1940, Roosevelt had deployed the fleet out to Pearl Harbor, which was kind of the advanced operating base. And so there it was, sitting in, in Pearl Harbor, and that was the force that the Japanese knew they'd have to deal with. If you fight the United States, the, the, the great concern they had was with the Pacific Fleet. And so, uh, but you're, you're, he's right, you know, even on December the 7th, on Sunday afternoon, when word got to Washington that the Japanese had attacked, and they, you know, the report was they'd attacked Pearl Harbor, uh, I think it was the Secretary of the Navy, maybe it was the Secretary of State, I, I can't remember anymore, but uh, I have to look that up, but uh, actually said when he got the message that this is a mistake. They, it must be the Philippines. You know, both start with the letter P, and so he thought it can't be Pearl Harbor. It's got to be. It's got to be the Philippines. He just didn't didn't believe it could be the Philippines. So they didn't believe it even when they had it staring them in the face, uh, sir. I say they didn't believe it even when he was staring exactly. them in the face. Exactly. Well, let's stop right there and come back. And uh, I'm, I don't want to take you to any places that you don't want to go tonight, but. Can we come back and talk about some places where in in following this this uh, narrative, the people who were following it, as the, the documentary that I was watching said, dropped the ball, so to speak. Some places when they, when something happened that they might have uh, taken things more seriously. Because that t- continues to be, as you observed earlier, one of the hottest topics is, is uh, explanations other than the ones that... Uh, or the, the formally accepted explanations. Dr. Joe Cadell, who I did not give the proper introduction, and I, I didn't give you his pedigree, but he <laughs> is a North Carolinian that makes us love him even more. He's from Aberdeen, North Carolina, and he, tra- he graduated from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, majored, I believe, in history, and went up the road about 10 miles to Duke and got a Ph.D. and uh, has uh, uh, been about teaching history since then. Uh, he is a, a veteran. I think he was in the uh, Air Force and in the Air Force Reserve. So it all added up, Joe. Didn't it add up to about 20 years somewhere along the way? 25. Yeah. 25. Okay. And so he has walked the walk and he's, he's talked the talk. And uh, uh, I've interviewed numerous students that he's had. In fact, uh, Joe Ernie Dollar, who's one of your students, was on here recently. And he, he like you, delivers a a good lesson when he when he comes to visit us. Uh, but we're going to pause now and come back and talk some more about Pearl Harbor because although the day is just about over now, we're going to remember it. It is, uh, as our president said on uh, 
December the 8th, 1941, the day that would live in infamy. And that means we cannot let uh, let it uh, be forgotten. Back with Jim Cadell and Pearl Harbor right after this. Looking at the wrong box there. Got a whole bunch of them. Tom Kearney here, the Tom Kearney Show. We're here every night, Monday through Friday from 9 until 10. And we are conscious of anniversaries in our history and uh, Tonight, uh, Dr. Joe Cadell, military historian, historian in general, is here with us to help us remember Pearl Harbor. Dr. Cadell, uh, we had a promo in the last break there that uh, alluded to the fact that WPTF is bringing the news, been bringing the news for almost 100 years now. And indeed, on the afternoon of December 7, 1941, they were delivering the news. Are you are you with me, Joe? Yes, sir. And uh, uh, the gentleman who was in charge that day uh, uh, told me in, inter- in an interview he uh, he got a call. It being Sunday afternoon, it was a, a junior producer running the control board, but the, the Japanese had bombed Pearl Harbor, and he said, what must I do? Uh, this was one of the few radio stations in this part of the world. And he said, well, go out in the street and see if you can find some soldiers. They'll be the ones with the uniforms. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that he had a lot of faith in him, but uh, WPTF did a lot of bringing the news in World War II and a lot of other times. But uh, uh, we, uh, I mentioned to you that I had uh, encountered in a doc- the documentary I was watching uh, an approach that uh, pointed to the the uh, numbers of times that the, the ball had been dropped by uh, minesweeper commanders and, and other people. And you talked in the first part of the program about the sort of general belief that something was going to happen. I guess maybe a, a way to ask this question is, how aware were the people in Hawaii, the the, the admirals, the generals, down to the to the uh, to the soldiers and sailors, aware of that something might be going to happen? Yeah, they were they were pretty aware of that that tensions were. I mean, you can just read the headlines of the of the papers. Uh, uh, the fact that we were playing brinksmanship with the Japanese, that negotiations in Washington between the two Japanese ambassadors uh, and the U.S. that had been they, they were negotiating, trying to get into the embargo. We were you know, we embargoed everything by this point. Uh, everybody knew that the U.S. Uh, Japanese relations were at a at a, at a, at a crucial point. Um, they had had a war warning warning in November. Um, they'd actually been warned to be on their toes in November because the, the military had actually gone on alert. They'd strung barbed wire on Waikiki Beach and, you know, uh, dug foxholes and and uh, deployed troops and dispersed aircraft and, and so forth. And so there was a general understanding. The one reason the aircraft carriers uh, weren't in port was that we were deploying aircraft out to, to Wake Island and to Midway and, and so forth to to, you know, to reinforce our uh, the garrisons on some of the Ford Islands, and so there was a general sense that you know things were getting pretty testy, um, and that that was they understood that. Uh, but again, they, they didn't know uh, where or, or when, uh, and that was that was that was that was important. Um, I do a thing. I, I did used to teach uh, for, for about twenty years to talk for the Department of Defense. Uh, these courses, uh, case studies on warning failures. That's what you do when you study warning. You study warning failures. Unfortunately, there are a lot of warning failures. Uh, and uh, Pearl Harbor is maybe the mother of all warning failures. But uh, 
you, you look at what went wrong, uh, I came up with eight different things that I could identify. I don't take it, don't try to drag you through all eight of those. But the one at the top of the list, and it was at the top of the list of the official investigation, and oddly enough, or maybe not so oddly enough, it was at the top of the 9-11 Commission, and that was the fractured command structure and compartmented intelligence. In other words, there was enough intelligence out there to tell you that something bad was about to happen, even maybe give you a pretty good idea where, uh, when was a little trickier. But we certainly had uh, intelligence that could have caused us to be better prepared. The problem is, is that that intelligence never came before a single pair of eyeballs. You know, some people had part of the, you know, every organization had different pieces of the puzzle. The FBI had some information. The State Department had some information. Naval intelligence had some of the information. And, and this was all in, intelligence that had been gathered in the, in the preceding, oh, say, six months. The, the biggest one, I think, is probably when the Japanese went on, the Japanese Navy went pretty much on total radio silence. Their ships stopped transmitting. Now, warships, in their normal day-to-day operations, they talk to each other, or they send signals to the, their home bases and, and so forth. And when, when warships uh, of a Navy stop transmitting totally, it means they already have a, a, a something pre-planned. Uh, they don't need to talk to one another. They don't have any need to coordinate and communicate, so they've already got a pre, you know, preset notion. And that occurred in November. Uh, all of a sudden, the Japanese just stopped transmitting. And their battleships, you know, battleships, battle cruisers, heavy cruisers, aircraft carriers, the, the major fleet units, stopped talking. Now, I don't know, most folks uh, have been in, in homes that have small children. And you all know that if you've been in a house with small children, the most terrifying sound is silence. I always, I always tell people, you know, when my kids were growing up, as long as I could hear them, as long as I could hear what they were doing, everything was fine. But the moment I couldn't hear them, I had to get up and go find them. I just knew they were doing something like they were in the closet striking matches or whatever. You just knew they were up to something when you couldn't hear them. And the naval intelligence uh, probably should have gotten a little more. They did tell Admiral Kimmel, the fleet commander, eventually they told him. And, and it, that worried him. But they didn't share that information uh, with other people. It did not get to, to Roosevelt. Um, and that's part of the problem. Almost none of this got to Roosevelt. Very little of this got to Roosevelt. You know, this is the thing that's always funny. You know, we, we've talked before about conspiracy theories. All the folks just love to, to blame it on Roosevelt. Everybody loves to say, oh, Roosevelt knew, Roosevelt knew this, Roosevelt knew that. Now, if you stop and think about it, presidents, you know, don't really get the micro details. They don't get the, until, until there's a picture usually, until you can actually tell the president something kind of conclusive. The, you know, the bits and pieces never get to the president. And we didn't have a, a coordinated intelligence system. We didn't have a CIA back in 1940. Joe, can we stop right there yeah. and hold that and make a radio tease out of sure. this and ask sure. everybody to hold on to find out how this story works out, okay? Dr. Yes, Joe Fidel is our guest tonight talking about Pearl Harbor. We'll be back. 933 at WTTF. Tom Kearney here. Tom Kearney show on our Monday night, December 7th, in the year 2020, 79th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor. Uh, it occurred, Joe Cadell, are you there? Yes, sir. You need to help me with the times now. It occurred 
I think, uh, was it a little before 7 or a little before 8 in Hawaii? Well, it depends on what part you're talking about. Because, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. The, um, uh, off the southern shoreline, the USS Ward, the destroyer out there, actually attacked and sank the Japanese Midget Submarine uh, you know, around 6.30 or so. And then the main attack was uh, all 7.53, something like that, just a few minutes before 8. Um, the main, main attack... Uh, First wave came in over Pearl Harbor itself uh, just before eight. And you referred to the first wave, but we'll come back in just a second and talk about the other waves. But this was in Washington D.C. What about one o'clock? Uh, one thirty, when, when they would have found out about it. Yeah, and you know that was the thing that um, uh, you know the Japanese had sent uh, a fourteen-part um, uh, message, um, kind of an ultimatum. Uh, to uh, kind of end negotiations between us and, and the Japanese. Uh, you know, we, like I said, the, the U.S. had put an embargo on the Japanese because of their expansion, particularly when they went into French Indochina. And um, it had hurt. The Japanese were hurt by this embargo. There's no question about it. And um, we had been uh, negotiating uh, what to do about this. The Japanese were trying to get us to lift the embargoes. And um, their ambassadors in Washington and our State Department had been thrashing this out. And uh, uh, the ambassadors in, in uh, uh, Kokura and Nomura were the two uh, gentlemen in Washington. And they were um, uh, uh, told uh, by a, a classified cable, a radio message actually, uh, on Friday and to be prepared for a 14-part message. And sure enough, that 14-part message came in. Now, we were reading the Japanese diplomatic traffic. We'd broken their purple code, the codes uh, that, that they communicated between embassies, between their foreign office and their embassies. So we knew um, that the 14-part message was going to come in. And sure enough, it came in, started coming in on Saturday. And uh, the funny thing is, it, 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 when we decoded it, it decoded it into English. Generally, of course, Japanese messages decoded into plain text Japanese. And so we had not only to break the code, but we had to translate from Japanese into English. Um, and this 14-part message had already been put into English in, in Tokyo. And as the message traffic came in, um, Roosevelt uh, was shown 13 of the 14 parts on Saturday evening. And uh, he said, well, this means war. Of course, conspiracy theories have had a field day with that, but he didn't know with whom. He didn't. He, he knew it meant the Japanese were going to move, but he didn't know whether they'd attack us. He certainly didn't know whether they'd attack you know, <laughs> our forces in the Pacific, whether it be the Philippines or Pearl Harbor or when. So, you know, he, he certainly knew the Japanese were getting ready to do something. And the, all 14 parts of the message came in by Sunday morning, and uh, at that point, General Marshall, the head of the Army, and Admiral Stark, the head of the Navy, uh, they got together and they read all 14 parts of the message. And it's a point-by-point -point rebuttal of all of our positions, and it breaks diplomatic relations. It breaks all diplomatic relations. It did not declare war, but it's pretty obvious that the Japanese have stopped negotiating. And so General Marshall um, and, and Admiral Stark talked about it, and... Uh, uh, Admiral Stark said he wasn't going to send any more messages out of the Pacific because he'd already warned them a couple of times. He thought it would just confuse them if he sent them another message. But General Marshall saw the thing where it was supposed, the message was supposed to be delivered um, at 
bothered Marshall because he asked one of his officers, what time will that be in Hawaii? And the officer said, that'll be around 7.30 in the morning, 7.30 a.m. It was, they were a uh, half hour, an hour off. It didn't work out back then. The time zone for Hawaii was a lot. And then Marshall's next question was, what time is dawn in Hawaii? And the officer, I think it was a major, said, about 7.30. And Marshall said, oh, shoot, or something like that. And uh, he actually uh, prepared a message to send out to Pearl. Uh, but the radio uh, uh, traffic, they were having trouble uh, getting messages through to Fort Shaftner. Uh, I think they were having some, some problems with atmospheric, static, whatever. They radio uh, signal from, from Washington they couldn't get through. Right across the street, the Navy had instantaneous communication on Pearl Harbor by a secure telephone. Uh, they actually had a cable that ran from the West Coast uh, out to Pearl, but the Army didn't use that. Instead, they sent it by Western Union, and that's, uh, if you're talking about people dropping the ball, that message uh, arrived in, in, uh, uh, in Pearl Harbor about an hour after the last Japanese plane left. So, uh, Am I wrong in that uh, the... Uh the, uh, there was a question about the delivery of the message by the Japanese people that he was supposed to be delivered before the attack, but yeah. they had a real slow typist. That's right. That's exactly right. They didn't get delivered it on time. It was delivered later. They, they, the, funny, the thing that's always strange about that is, is that they'd actually been, been warned, like I said, on Friday that the, the message come in, so they, they'd have somebody available over the weekend uh, you know, to type it up and to get it all I think people forget nowadays what it was like with an old manual typewriter. You know, <laughs> you, you, you had to get your, if you, especially for something like a diplomatic message, going to go from one government to the other, it had to be perfect. So you can't make any mistakes. They didn't have whiteout even or things like that. So, you know, and, and so they, they need a really skilled typist uh, to be on duty. And uh, somewhere along the way, they dropped the ball because you're right, it was, it was delivered later. But it, it did not include the Japanese. There have been cases where um, uh, there have been some uh, some claims that, the, that this was a declaration of war, and there there isn't a declaration of war in there. Uh, and all, the closest they came was they broke diplomatic relations. You know, in, in diplomatic language, to have an actual declaration of war, you literally have to use the word declare war, and uh, they did. But uh, some Japanese historians have tried to claim that that it was. Uh, and it was. Now, did did it did it uh, as portrayed in the movie? And I'm going to ask you about the veracity. I think that's the right word of Torah, Torah, Torah. It was a matter of kind of honor, though, that the the attack happened before the message was delivered. Uh, I, I'm I, I'm not sure that that, um, that that there's any honor in that, in in so much as um, um, it, it's still you know, without a declaration of war. Uh, it, it, it's just as dishonorable um, to simply break diplomatic relations than to attack without a declaration of war. Is, uh, there's not much difference in that. I, I think we milked it for all it was worth. I think uh, uh, Secretary you know, Cordell Hall uh, uh, used it to, to the nth degree to try to chain the Japanese negotiators, the Japanese uh, ambassadors. But uh, I'm not sure we'd have been any... Uh, any less outraged if the message had been delivered on time. You know what you're doing, Joe Cadell, you're reminding us of the difficult job of, uh, I once trained to be one and you are one, uh, of the historian to, to 
way through the fog and find out what really did happen. Well, we can only find out, and, and again, of course, there are always different interpretations. It's always, yes. Um, I, I first started teaching this for the Department of Defense in 1978, um, and I, one of the justifications I had for, you know, a, a historical case study was that we, we, we know everything we're going to know about Pearl Harbor. That's what I said. Back in 1978, I, had, I made that kind of silly remark. I actually justifying it to, uh, uh, to some folks on the faculty. This organization was called the Defense Intelligence College back then, down the National Intelligence University. And, uh, and, and, uh, and I, you know, some of those guys you know, felt that they didn't want anything historical. They wanted something more current, like the Yom Kippur War of 73 or something like that, the Tet Offensive, you know, 60, 68, something like that. And uh, the idea, I want to go back to Pearl Harbor, uh, my justification going back to Pearl Harbor, was I said, look, we know everything we're ever going to know about Pearl Harbor. Um, and since then, more stuff has come out. I mean, the, the Clausen's work, uh, Harold Clausen's work came out. Uh, it turns out there was an investigation done by the Secretary of War that nobody knew anything about. Uh, but, I mean, it's, it's funny. You do continue to still discover things and come up with new interpretations. Um, so I'd like to think I've we, uh, you know, we've talked about this so many times, and you and I have talked about this, that you know, we, we, we feel that we're cutting through the fog, but uh, you know, sometimes you're, you're still left knowing that you, you don't know everything that happened. There's no way, obviously. Uh, but uh, it's, a, it's a very humbling experience. <laughs> well, as you, put, as you pointed out, and, I, and, and I'm aware, and I think any of our listeners are, but they do need to be reminded of it there. There have come out over the years uh, uh, different uh, historians who had interpretations. Who, you know, as you remarked earlier, some people want to want to believe that Roosevelt knew all about it and he set it up so that yeah. it would happen that way. And I think that's highly unlikely. But that I think that's highly unlikely. I think that's just preposterous. Uh, uh, now, doesn't really mean much. In, now, in, if, if people, if there, if conspiracy, I think Roosevelt did want the Japanese to do something stupid. I do think that Roosevelt wanted the Japanese to make a mistake, and they did. I mean, in a way, I don't. I, I think Roosevelt, but I don't think he wanted to lose the, the battle fleet. I mean, he, he did not want to set the Navy up like that. Roosevelt was a, considered himself a Navy man. He'd been assistant secretary of the Navy. Uh, he loved ships. He loved doing things with the Navy. The Army always felt that Roosevelt was too close to the Navy, right? The Army Air Forces felt he was too close to the Navy. That he was, he was just you know, biased in favor of the Navy. Well, he had been under Secretary of Navy under Josephus yeah, Daniel. That's right. That's right. During the First World War. Right. And um, uh, and had continued to be kind of a naval analyst. He wrote, uh, you know, uh, op-eds all the time on, on naval affairs in the Washington Post and, well, and other papers. And uh, he, uh, uh, you know, the idea that he would have wanted that to happen to, to American forces it's just silly. I mean, that's just r- r- ridiculous. Well, if he was going to do something like that, he, he I'm making, I'm not making it up, but he had been diddling, uh, uh, at least the American government had been a little bit in the Atlantic. Uh, oh, yes. Yeah, uh, he pushed it already. I mean, we already were escorting convoys. The Reuben James and the Carney and others had been. That's right. Uh, that's right. Had already, already been. been and because and, we had been you know, escorting uh, uh, convoys to the mid-ocean point since uh, the middle of 1941. Uh, 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 um, and 
uh, there are two. Uh, Roosevelt had two basic uh, assumptions uh, that I think drove his foreign and national security policy. One, he believed the Axis powers, Nazi Germany, Fascist Italy, and Imperial Japan, did constitute a threat to the United States. He, he really believed that the Germans, the, uh, to a lesser extent the Italians, but the Germans, the Japanese certainly, really did constitute a threat to the United States. His second assumption was that the American public didn't see it. And so he had to develop policies that incorporated both those assumptions. And so things like you know, giving the British 50 destroyers a lend-lease, uh, you know, escorting convoys to the Atlantic, all these things uh, were done uh, trying to give as much aid as he could uh, to the British, and after June of 1941, to the Soviet Union. Because if he could provide weapons to countries that were doing the fighting, he thought that was much better than actually you know, having American boys involved in the war. Well, he really certainly one of the great stories of the war. I've been reading a book by, I can't even think of the guy's name now, he's a guy who's written some things about Harry Truman, uh, about how um, Roosevelt called the head of GM in and the head of Ford and all those people and said, okay, we got to make airplanes now, you know, yep. that kind of thing. 50,000 a year is what he wanted. People thought he was crazy. Uh, that, that's just... That, that always kind of fascinated me. You know, that, that's one of the great uh, uh, examples of, of uh, a president having his way. Uh, you know, we were producing um, only you know, somewhere around, what, six to 69,000 aircraft a year. And uh, he said, I want to bump it up to 50,000. And he had had a big conference. Like you said, you know, everybody, every aviation company, you know, Lockheed, North American, Boeing, Grumman, they were all there. Uh, Army Air Corps was there. The naval uh, aviators were there. The airlines were there. All the industrialists that might be involved were there. This big conference, and they all told him how this was impossible. You just can't mass produce airplanes. They said these these aren't 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 refrigerators. These aren't aren't Studebakers, right? These are not you know uh, things that you can just mass produce. You can mass produce you know the fuselage. You can fuse, you know, mass produce the wings, the engines, but the altimeters, the turn bank indicators, you know. Uh, all the instrumentation, that's just, you know, that, those are like fine Swiss watches. You just can't take, you know, Joe Sixpack off the street and put him on the assembly line and produce these things. And they explain, you just can't mass produce aircraft. And uh, Roosevelt didn't care. He said 50000 And I think that's the first billion-dollar item uh, in, in a U.S. budget. That's the first time we had a single budget item that hit a billion dollars. And... In the last 12 months of World War II, from August of 1944 to August 1945, the United States produced 104,000 aircraft. So, Roosevelt turned out not to be so wrong after all. Well, we, we need to stop now for a moment and do a, a commercial break. And when we come back, we can continue with this. But I also would like to, to, to ask you if you would, you know, I love bibliography. If you could name, yeah, I know it will be uh, Gordon Prang, probably. Uh, I, maybe I John that, that, that will certainly be it. Yeah, but at the same time, if if you uh, have on the tip of your tongue or the edge of your brain um, one or two military books, histories from the past year that you would like to name, I like to do this around Christmas and ask many of my guests to do this. 
If you could lay those off, it would be wonderful to close out the show. Joe Cadell, military historian, we'll be back. Necrology for the year 2020 with a list of those who have passed away and who should be remembered roughly from the end of the month of October. But uh, we hope you will join us for that. And uh, tonight, Dr. Joe Cadell, military historian, historian in, in general, has been our guest and, and will continue to be for about three more minutes. Dr. Cadell, uh, bibliography. Have have there been any good military books that came out this year? I'm just trying to think. I, I'm not sure you, know, you, you would really say, you know, for, for bedtime reading. Um, have, have you, have, do you have any reference? You, you're usually more up to date on this than I am. Um, I, I tend to go for the, 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 uh, the oldies but goodies. Uh, uh, I still, um, you know, uh, uh, Keegan, John Keegan's works, I recommend for people with, if you're not a military historian, and you don't history maybe isn't your favorite subject, but you're you kind of you know interested in a, in a in a well written in a well written book that that makes you think. Um, John Keegan's Face of Battle, which is now what 35 years old at this point, uh, probably more than that, um, is an excellent work to uh, if you want to understand you know what. People in military organizations over time have had to deal with, and and people who have no interest whatsoever in military history or even history per se often find that a, a book that, that fascinates them. Uh, uh, Joe, I will tell you how good the face of battle was. It still is. I got it right when it came out and read it, and I thought it was really great, and there was something special about it. And if I figured it out that quick, it must have been good. Well, yeah, right. You're. You're one of the most uh, well-read individuals I've ever ever met. So, but uh, another one of his works, uh, which is was supposed to be the naval equivalent of the face of battle, is called Frights of the Admiralty, and it's about naval history and does the same thing. And it puts, you know, it, it kind of describes what the people who were involved in various uh, campaigns, what it was like to to sail on a on a wooden ship, the line under Nelson, you know. The, and, early 19th century, and uh, what it would have been like to be at Jutland in the First World War. Um, and he's so, he, he's, he's so well-informed, he's such a scholar. Uh, I don't think any doubt about that, that he's just one of the, the he's a first-rate uh, uh, historian. Um, and and I, I recommend it to everybody, particularly people who, if you're not really um, um, uh, necessarily would think of picking up something in military history to read, uh, Keegan, almost anything. His First World War, uh, his book on the First World War, I think is excellent. And he has, there were a few of them in there that he wrote. Uh, there were some questions whether he wrote some of those. <laughs> he'd kind of he'd become John Keegan Incorporated or Limited. Uh, well, you but, know what we can do? I can let you off the hook now because we've run out of time. Oh, good. <laughs> you did your usual fine job helping us. Uh, as it, we, we would say in quotes, remembering Pearl Harbor tonight. Thank you so much. Thank you for putting up with me. You and all of yours have a wonderful holiday. You too. Have a great great holiday, Dom. Take care. Joe Cadell, our military historian here on WPTF on the Tom Kearney Show. Tomorrow night, we're going to update the necrology with Dr. Edward Funkhausen.